0: This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One.
1: And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't in the cover, they easily could be. So today, we're going to switch it up a little bit. We'll talk business, entrepreneurship, but also a little self-help. And I'm excited to have Jordan Harbinger with us, who is an entrepreneur, podcast host. You know, I feel like these days, so much of life is electronic, it's virtual, it's social media, and that means when you actually do meet someone in person, all the cues and the conversation and the interaction are even more important, and you are an expert in making those moments really meaningful, correct?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a tough thats a tough sort of thing to say, yes, I'm really good at this, right? Because there's <laughs> going to be people who are listening that are like, oh, I met that guy, and uh, no, I don't think so. But I think the trick for us and and the, the key for me was figuring out that most people aren't good at this, even if they think they are, and focusing on, on what to learn. Because I, I was a Wall Street attorney for a while, and the reason I got into all this was because through elementary school, middle school, high school, I coasted because I was relatively intelligent compared to a lot of the other kids. And I was able to do my schoolwork and impress teachers enough to kind of get by and get decent grades. And then in college, everybody was as smart or smarter than me, probably smarter than me, but they were so busy getting drunk because they were at, away from home for the first time in their life that I could outwork them. And I outworked them and that worked in law school as well to a certain extent. And then by the time I got to Wall Street, it was like everybody's smart and everybody's working 20 hours a day. And everyone's I, drunk. And everyone and everyone's drunk or, or worse. Uh, and But the thing was, is the idea here was that My competitive advantage was gone. It was gone, and I started to get what we refer to as imposter syndrome, which is eventually they're going to find out I don't belong here. I'm going to get fired, and that's going to be all she wrote, and I I met this – I guess you could call him a mentor of mine in a certain way – Named Dave, and he was never in the office. This is a guy from Brooklyn with a tan, so you know he's got an edge that nobody else understands, right? Because <laughs> how does that even work? And he was never in the office, and as a lawyer, we're billing six-minute increments. And this guy's never there. So one day HR basically made him take me out for coffee because I was supposed to be his mentee and I'd never seen the guy. And I go – he goes, ask me anything. And I'm sure he thought like, oh, well, when we do financial derivatives, blah, 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 this and that. And I go, how come you're never in the office but you're a partner and everyone says you make a lot of money? I don't understand. Do you work from home? he, He puts his BlackBerry down and he's like, really? People are talking about this? and. You know, at this point I'm like, well, that's the word on the street and I'm chickening out because I'm imagining getting fired at Starbucks. But (laughs) he told me that what he does is he generates a lot of the deal flow. So he's more valuable on the golf course, doing jujitsu, playing racquetball, squash. Uh, hanging out on a boat or whatever with some investment banker who took the day off, he's more valuable there than he is in the office billing in six-minute increments, even though his hourly bill rate was probably like $900. Yeah, that's a good place
1: to be. I have a few friends that are recovered corporate lawyers, and they always say that the three types of lawyer are, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this, it's a finder, a minder, and a grinder, and the finders get the deals, and the grinders are probably you, the young guys, cranking out the hours and doing the footnotes and all the documents.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I thought to myself, for the first several years, you're just a grinder, nobody expects more from you. And what I realized was, wait a minute, this is kind of the secret third path to the top of the law game that nobody seems to understand right now. But if I start now, I'm going to have a five, six, seven year advantage on all of these other people who are probably more talented and more smart than I am. So if I start now, my time advantage is going to eventually make it so that I'm indispensable by the time other people even figure out that this is a skill set they need to build. And that's what I focused on. So
1: this guy, Dave, kind of take you under his wing and learn how to bring in business or how how that evolution go?
0: That's what everybody asks. And, and sadly, that wasn't the case. What I realized was not only was Dave not going to show me how he did this, but he didn't really know how. I mean, I peppered him with questions. I showed up to his office whenever I could find him. I emailed mm-hmm. him questions about this stuff all the time. But his answer was, well, you know, you just after a while you meet people in the industry, just keep in touch with them and hang out. And I'm like, I I don't get that. So I started to focus on deconstructing people like that, that were well connected, that even if they were born into those networks, I wanted to figure out what it was. And so a lot of my friends after that in law school were the guys that were like, Hey, why don't you come out to my family's island off Nan, you know, near Nantucket and we'll hang out this summer. And I thought, okay, you own an island. (laughs) And you know, these kind of, these kind of people and the skills that I got from them were, were, uh, the realizations I got from them were varied because you realize you don't buy an island when you're 22. Your family's ho- owned that island for a 100 years, right? Yeah. You're related to Paul Revere. Those come with connections. However, the people that are doing the real business in that family, they're just so good at making other people feel like they belong there and they're comfortable there and they're intelligent and they're constantly doing things like, hey, let's have a party. And so mm-hmm. I, I really just focused on – Things that I could control because I can't invite people out to my private island. So that's not an actionable tip for me. And I started to focus on the other things that these people were good at, like nonverbal communication, body language, uh, persuasion, helping other people all the time. And so these are concepts that we, that we, Essentially deconstructed and then wrote into the art of charm curriculum that we talk mm-hmm. about on the art of charm podcast and at our live programs.
1: So you were like an outsider looking. Are you a northeast guy? Are you a California guy originally?
0: I'm from Michigan. So talk Michigan, about okay. no connections. My father was an auto worker and a manager at Ford after, you know, before he retired. My mom was a public school teacher. So I, I didn't even know what old money was until. I got to high school and there were a couple of rich kids there. You start to realize like, oh, if their father was rich and their father's father was rich, that money compounds. And I thought, okay, I don't have a time advantage. Once again, I don't have a time advantage, but I can figure out what these people are doing that got them there in the first place aside from that time advantage and sort of concentrate that. And then once I figure out what those factors are, I can step on the gas because the advantage that we have as people who study this stuff, and I mean we as in everyone listening right now, is that even though we weren't born into a network like that, people who are, they're coasting generally. Generally, they're not going out and making these connections on their own. I start to see oh, wait a minute, those guys are well-connected, but I'm more probably as well, equally, or even more connected than they are, because they've maybe made a handful of connections over the last 10 or 15 years since law school, and I've made hundreds, if not thousands, because I'm doing it deliberately and with intention.
1: I want to talk about how you started this business, but just quick question again, as you said, this outsider kid from Michigan looking at these other people that maybe come from networks or traditional family money. And you said that they had some sort of charisma or easygoing way with people. Do you think that they learned that somehow, or just that's how they, the environment they grew up in?
0: Great question. I think it's both, actually. So. Some of these guys that were born into that, their environment allowed them to develop a certain level of skill early on. And this this is the same thing when it comes to dating. I was really looking at people's behavior and modeling it. So I did look at a lot of these folks, and what you find is that people who are good with people – it often looks like they're born with this, which is why a lot of people say, the art of charm, eh, you're either born with it or you're not, which is a clever excuse for most of us to tell ourselves that, oh, I can't learn this because of XYZ excuse process that keeps us sort of tethered to where we are now. The reason that these people who are, Seemingly born with it are good at it is because early on in their environment, there was something going on that they modeled that made them successful later on. Maybe mm-hmm. since their grandpa did own some island it, in Maine, they had family gatherings that had hundreds of people and they had big weddings there. That's not necessarily how they were born. They've been looking at these events since they were eight years old, so it's natural for them. They saw how other successful adults acted in those environments, and they modeled that behavior. As adults, it used to be, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Oh, kids learn languages faster. Now we know that that stuff is just not true. We know that adults are faster and better learners than children. It's just that kids have more free time to pick this stuff up. Mm-hmm. So, if you're listening to this right now and you're thinking, "Oh, I can't be social. I can't learn this," or even, you know, I want to learn Chinese but I can't, it's not because you're too old. It's because you're not dedicating the bandwidth to doing it.
1: So, you were a Wall Street lawyer, whatever that. Doing what? Con- were you doing contracts, doing deals? What I was, you, yeah, what you I was doing on? real
0: estate finance. But when you're a first and second year associate, what you're really doing is checking for commas and documents or spell checking. That's you're, yeah. you're doing what Microsoft Word can do better than you and faster.
1: <laughs> Human Microsoft Word. Yes. So when did you make the – you were studying kind of these different social inter- interactions. When did you decide to quit law and start the Art of Charm and teach people these, these lessons that you're picking up on the side?
0: Sure. So what happened was around 2008, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but there was a big economic downturn. and uh
1: I was, I was right there. Yeah.
0: And like so, everybody else. Like everybody else. And so what ended up happening was I got hired in 2006, and I ended up working through 2007. And six to nine months or maybe a year and change after I started working there, the workflow dwindled to – Very, it was very low, and then it was lower, and then it was nothing, and then they called an all hands meeting and they're like, we're not laying you guys off. What we are saying is that you should probably start looking for work at other places if you're really interested in getting experience because we're just, we don't have anything to give you. For me, I had already started the podcast, the Art of Charm podcast in law school. Talking about the networking stuff that I had learned from Dave, talking about some of the dating stuff because that was more interesting when you're 24 years old. And really meshing with all, meshing all that stuff together. And so I thought, am I really going to try to find another job that I don't want or should I just be young because I'm young and double down on the fact that I have almost no responsibilities and I'm in a place to take on a lot of risk. And so we just went full time with Art of Charm.
1: And so you start this business. What and to our listeners who might not have come to your website yet or know about what the product is, what do you? What did you guys offer to start, and how has it grown? What does it offer now?
0: So what we offered at first was, hey, if you're quiet or you're shy, we'll teach you how to get out of your shell. And that quickly evolved into what at the time was dating related stuff. And then a lot of that pickup artisty stuff really got icky pretty quick. Yep. And so we went, whoa, wait, we can't, we don't want to brand as this because we were teaching men and women how to be more outgoing and create networking connections, get jobs, ace interviews, and meet great people. And we had the dating element, but here's the problem. If you consider yourself the white hat version of something bad like pickup artist stuff, then congratulations, you're the good guy drug dealer, right? Like, you just can't <laughs> shake that brand. It's a, no, like, no, no, less, no, no. You're,
1: you're less creepy, but you're still a creep.
0: Right. Like, you, you somehow end up being like, here's why we're everything you think we are, except we're the good guys, and it just doesn't work, and you're constantly fighting this uphill battle. And even today, I mean, I haven't talked about dating-related stuff for uh, eight years, and even in the beginning of this show, it's like, sir, you know one of those pickup guys or what? And it's like, ugh, no. So you, you just can't shake the branding. It's really hard to do. Uh, But you guys still
1: offer that stuff, right? I I mean, I see there's like, there's business, but also personal, um, coaching, which sounds to me like an euphemism for that kind of stuff.
0: No, it's not really a euphemism. So our clients are both men and women, but right now we have an entire class that's only green berets, and we had SEAL Team 6 come through before the Bin Laden mission, so it's not really a euphemism for like PUA stuff. So what is
1: that, what do you, what do you kind of learn? What is, what
0: is that stuff? So we're, what those guys are learning are relationship development techniques, nonverbal communication, both display and reading, as well as how to, how to sort of create connections with people that are long lasting and, and are not transactional. So it's not just, it's not really a lot of, like here's how you talk to ladies. I mean, we get a lot of people that come through. Well, first of all, both men and women, but yeah. we also get a lot of government guys that come through that want to learn a very specific skill set. So the, it tends to revolve around nonverbal communication, persuasion, influence, networking, and those types of strategies.
1: And when you mentioned, you, I mean, you mentioned the government. You mentioned SEALs and uh, you know Delta Force kind of guys. What are they look? Are they looking for? traits to help them in in the military or is it more to kind of help relocate to normal life, so to speak, or civilian life?
0: Ah great question. So it's actually both. But the the reason the Green Berets and, and DevGrew or SEAL Team Six and the SEALs and the Delta Force guys come through, and even the special air service from Australia and the UK, the reason those guys tend to come through is because they want to apply this stuff in field, and I don't just mean on the battlefield. I mean, you're, I mean, intra agency cooperation, uh, green berets, especially because they deal with a lot of locals and insurgent groups and things like that, where they're training people on the ground for months or years at a time. But a lot of vets do come through because of the transition, because when you're a veteran, basically it's like you've got this really interesting skill set. You're used to certain things getting done a certain way. And then you go into civilian life and a lot of people can't adjust to you. It's not just that vets can't necessarily adjust to civilian Mm -hmm. life. It's that people often don't know how to deal with vets because their biggest problem was parking is so hard here. And the vet's like, yeah, I got shot in the leg and a couple of my friends died. And you just have the the gap between commonality and common ground is just so enormous. So we'll help transitioning vets quite a bit because we can teach them rapport skills, rapport building skills, communication skills. And, of course, we can help take that edge off that makes them look like and and seem like extremely military without taking away the advantage that they get from their training and experience in the military. Does that make so sense?
1: It does. I'm really curious, Jordan. So, how did you go from you know studying you know Smooth Day, Smooth Dave, the law firm, to advising uh, Green Berets how to deal with you know insurgent forces? Like, what did you? How did you make that leap? And what did you learn?
0: I was no expert in the beginning. All I was was a, a show host, and. For a long time, I worked with a lot of the coaches that I interviewed on the show, and I ended up hiring a lot of them. A lot of them work here at The Art of Charm, and a lot of these other consultants and communications experts said things like, oh, you know, why don't you come take my class on hostage negotiation? And I would go and do that, and I would go, oh, there's some really cool drills here we should use. And then that same expert might come in and teach that to a boot camp at the Art of Charm, and we would take those drills and exercises with their permission and adapt them for for what we're doing. So over the last 10 years, actually longer because that's how long we've been running the boot camps here, over the last decade and change, we've been adopting and adapting a lot of military and civilian drills from a lot of contractors and outside experts and even show guests and adapting them to our Mm -hmm. curriculum. So our coaches here have a, a wide array of expertise and experience. Just based on the fact that we've had access to people that most people don't have access to and we've been able to take their, their own courses and their material and adapt them to what we're doing. So we, we ended up in a very fortunate position because a lot of these same contractors and guests and things like that, if you want them to come in, if you want a hostage negotiator from the FBI to come and train your sales team, I mean, get the checkbook out. If you're, if they're even available, (laughs) you know?
1: That's cool. You're like a liberal arts school of, uh, of social, uh, tactics and tips.
0: Yeah. Social dynamics. Exactly. And it's, it's sort of been driven just based on my own interests. I mean, when I was young, I got in a lot of trouble because I learned how to wiretap when I was like 14 and I learned how to clone cell phones, which is essentially reprogramming cell phones so that they become scanners and you can listen to conversations. Where'd and- you learn that? I was self-taught so okay. and by self-taught I mean learned it from random dudes on the internet but this is the mm. early 90s so the internet was you think the internet's the wild west now it back then nobody even knew what it was and so the guys that I was interacting with online were like these shady dudes from Detroit and I would go meet up and they would show me how to do stuff and I'm 13 14 years old and these guys are like 1920 and they're all you know we're all geeks and um it was borderline creepy in retrospect because I'm like, how come you guys don't have friends your own age who are interested in this yeah. stuff, right? But back then it was probably less so because it was such a weird niche interest that it didn't matter. It was kind of yeah. like, yeah, we don't have to go down that road. Your but
1: parents your parents would love that.
0: They were so thrilled that I was going down to Detroit and getting picked up like miles away by random people in my car. But what was interesting for them was a lot of my friends at this point Even though they were 24 year old African American dudes from Detroit and we lived 16 miles north, they were so nice and half of them were like, oh yeah, we're in medical school or other guys were communications engineers because it wasn't just like, I'm a weird hacker guy with face tats who can't fit into society. Back then it was just geeks. And that's how geeks hung out and found each other. Yeah,
1: these are, these are hobbyists. These are hobbyists. Yeah.
0: And the problem was the hobbyists were really interested in illegal stuff like wiretapping and phone jamming and all that stuff. And eventually the FBI got wind of that and a bunch of them got arrested and they had my information and they were kind of like, wait, you're 13? What the, what, what's going on here? And I started to say, yeah, you know, look, I can show you how this stuff is done and it's really easy. And I think they were more disturbed by the fact that it's so easy that a 13, 14 year old kid could do it. And the cell phone companies were interested in this. So I started working with them. I didn't have to turn any any of my friends in, but I did show them how all the technology worked. And remember, in the early 90s, cybercrime in the FBI, this is a division that existed in D.C. and probably had like four people working in it. Yeah, <laughs> You know, this wasn't every bureau has cybercrime people. And probably even now, I would imagine that half the FBI is cyber something. But back then, it was a tiny division in D.C. that I would communicate with by phone via the office in Detroit, and I was faxing them, chat transcripts and documents, because the way that I learned this stuff was manuals that I got from the manufacturer of the phones, manuals that I got by pretending I worked for Motorola and calling, and so I showed them how their security procedures were super lax. And so when I was younger, before any of the social dynamic stuff, but well before law school, I was doing what they now call social engineering, which is essentially using the human weakness, the human element of security, and exploiting that to get information. So I was pretty lame with it by most standards. A lot of people were creating fake birth certificates and fake this and fake that. I was looking for phone manuals. I was looking for technical documents. But here's the problem. That's what spies, both industrial and international, use as well to get information that's secret so (laughs) showing them this technology for them to have a 14 year old kid doing this was a big eye opener for companies like motorola ameritech the bell system which ran of course the phones where i lived things like that was really disturbing because if a 14 year old kid could do it for fun imagine what a chinese national who's trying to build a similar system or similar microchip or even just cyber criminals or terrorists yeah Back anyone then, trained
1: and motivated by millions of dollars
0: right and and has resources i mean i'm calling from my freaking school right from a pay phone imagine what somebody who actually has money to buy technology works in an office with other experts can do with this stuff so that was that didn't occur to me but that was a big concern for them so in high school I'm leaving physics class to go meet with the local PD, the FBI and representatives from what name a technology company or the phone company and showing them step by step how I'm turning a cell phone into a scanner, how I'm getting electronic serial numbers to program into the phone by looking in the garbage at cell phone stores. And rather than throwing me in juvenile hall with a bunch of vandals and spray paint kids, they were kind of like, "Okay, stop doing this, but also show us how this is done. Because we need to fix this problem
1: that's good you were a security consultant at the age of 13 that's a uh, yeah 13 very 14. Precocious. yeah I, hope, I mean I hope they're pay- hope they were paying you
0: no they they weren't I think the trade-off was you don't go to juvie because you're cloning cell phones and doing all kinds of other bad stuff definitely in possession of things I probably shouldn't have been I had one of those little orange phones you know the lineman handset you, you ever see those guys I mean back in the day when we were kids they probably don't use them anymore
1: oh yeah they could plug them into everything how did you how did you get it you selling selling clone phones?
0: Yeah, I was selling clone phones. I, the lineman's handset that I got, I quote unquote found it. But obviously, when I was 13 or 10 years old, I was just a little punk, and I just grabbed it when the guys went into to Coney Island for lunch, which is a <laughs> restaurant chain. And you know, I was just like a, a young kid that I, I, I'd like to say I didn't know any better, but I was just a little jerk, probably. And but I used the stuff to learn because I was bored to tears in school, and I was getting in trouble there. Uh, so I wasn't ever one of those kids who, you know, smoked cigarettes or weed or anything like that or beat up anybody. I was just kind of a, a geek who was really bored and, uh, you know, decided to get into trouble. And I'm just lucky. I'm lucky that I got caught doing what I did when I did and that the FBI guys didn't throw the book at me but decided to learn instead mm-hmm. because this, my life could have turned out very differently. And I'm very thankful for that. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
2: Hey guys, David Smalley here, reminding you to check out Dogma Debate on the Podcast One app, iTunes, and basically everywhere else you could possibly hear a podcast. Dogma Debate is basically a way for you to peek in on conversations you've always wondered about. Say a hardcore anti-gay preacher meets an atheist who knows the Bible like the back of his hand. Or a far-left social justice warrior meets a different kind of liberal who doesn't want to join in on the riots. On Dogma Debate, I talk to people who completely disagree with me, and I let them tell me why they think I'm wrong, why I should be on their team, and why they take such an extreme stance. And sometimes you'll just hear me hanging out with like-minded people and laughing during segments like Republicans Say the Darndest Things or Fact Check Yo Mama. It all happens on Dogma Debate, right here on Podcast One.
1: Yeah, you had a good education between that and, and then corporate law, where you probably fit in pretty well, and now this. What is, with Art Charm now, what is kind of the business plan? How do you guys make your money? Is it on the seminars? Is it on the media? Is it a little bit of everything? What's kind of the, the secrets to this?
0: Sure. So, of course, the podcast has ad revenue. That's probably our lowest ad revenue vector. Uh, advertising for advertisers on the show is great, especially when you have three-plus million downloads per month, but it's a, yeah. it's a still a small piece of the of the pie. We have online courses which teach networking and relationship development. Those are for men and women, uh, married, unmarried, whatever. We also have our live program in L.A., which is where you see the Green Berets, special air service, corporate clients, uh, young guys doing their first stint on a new job that want to impress, divorced guys who need to get back in the game because they've been married for 20 years and last time they were dating, uh, the Internet didn't exist, stuff like that. And uh, we get a lot of folks in there, and that's our that's our top breadwinner. We run those classes every single week in LA, and they're residential, so people live on the school grounds. Really? We, wow. Yeah, they come from all over the world. So, like I said, this week we have some military clients. Last week we had guys from Denmark, the UK, Australia, China, US, and Canada. So it's it's a it's intense. It's sixty hours.
1: Well, it's a broad base of uh, clientele. Is there a certain uh, couple characteristics that kind of run through everyone, whether it's uh Green Beret or a, a new Silicon Valley, uh, software guy?
0: Yeah, I think that the, the general through line is first, they, they generally listen to the Art of Charm podcast and they like what they hear. So they, they have a, an interest in psychology, human behavior, that kind of human performance angle runs strongly through everybody. However, I think the other thing is generally, and of course this is probably 80-20, they realize either the hard way or from, it, their experience from listening to the show that their limitation is always going to be these soft skills. So we get a lot of guys that come in that are like, I've worked as a software engineer for 20 years, and I've been passed up for three promotions, and I finally figured out the reason is because when they say that I'm not going to be the one who's going to be good at managing this, what they mean is your technical skill is really high, but your soft skills are really low. Mm -hmm. and." The younger guys who don't have 20 years of job experience, they're coming in and going, huh, all right, so I'm starting this job. I have the same level of experience as everybody else at my level, which is pretty much zero. How do I stand out? And the way that you do that is not by becoming technically skilled overnight. It's very hard to do that. The way that you stand out in the first few years of a job is by having superior soft skills. And what we see where I live now in Silicon Valley, what we see people hiring for is is there's a certain base level of competence in a technical skill, or there's a highly technical, highly specialized area that someone gets hired for. But generally, the people that make the most amount of cash are not technical. They're people who can manage teams well, that can negotiate, that can pitch investors, that can create connections. And I think a lot of people who are technically minded, who are really good at mobile payments or whatever, their their most, their number one weak, weakest area, their number one area of deficiency is the soft skills. And so that's what we teach. We make up for it. And frankly, there's really no one else doing it. Uh, even HR organizations that say, oh, have us come in and we'll teach everybody how to interact better. They run a three-hour long afternoon seminar where it's essentially like a watered-down Dale Carnegie where they're like, here's how you remember names. Here's how, you you know, shake hands and have a firm handshake and great eye contact. And and frankly, look, man, if I don't like you, it's not because you don't have a firm handshake. If I don't like you or someone (laughs) else doesn't like you, it's not because, well, you know, he lacked eye contact when we first met. No, there's something more real going on, and I'm not going to BS you. We're going to tell you exactly what our experience is of you give you drills and exercises to help work on that and we're gonna work on that the entire week that you're here. Because if you're not making and creating connections, it's sure as hell not because, well, you forgot that the boss's kid likes to play tennis and that his name is James. That's not why you're not making connections. So you so mentioned, you mentioned
1: soft skills and you know this is called the art of charm. What is what is charm? What are what are soft skills like specifically? Is just interactions with people, is it is it certain things or is it more kind of small things that people pick up on without even realizing they're picking up on it
0: yeah it's small things that people don't realize necessarily so we're talking about body language and non-verbal communication rapport building skills vulnerability things like that eye contact the way you sit stand walk and talk but this is a this is a more universal approach it's not firm handshake look him in the eye it's more like huh, when you talk to somebody who you're nervous around, you lean in too close, or you break psychological space in a way that makes other people uncomfortable because you're also uncomfortable, or when you're nervous, your body language does this, and since people mirror each other, in other words, they do what you do, and it's a subconscious or unconscious process, since that's happening, we have to work that out, because if I'm nervous when I meet you, you start to make nervous gestures and make yourself nervous, you're not thinking, huh... Well, I feel nervous around Jordan. It must be because he's nervous interacting with other people. That's not how we work as humans. What mm-hmm. we do is we go, No, nah, that guy makes me nervous. I don't like him. The end. <laughs> so we have to work that out because not only is no one going to tell you this, they can't tell you this because they don't even know why they feel that way around you. So we have to fix that.
1: Well, it sounds like this school is very specific and you tailor it to each person. But for this show, could you share one or two um, maybe – Body language or 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 charm tricks that anyone can do like very easily and maybe improve like in a day.
0: Yeah, le- well, let me give you one that unfortunately it's not usually just something that you can get done in a day. But anything worth doing usually takes a while. I'll give you the, yeah for, sure. Th- this for drill, sure this drill. This drill is a game changer for pretty much everybody that does it and, and learns this. This is called the doorway drill, and essentially what this means is, look, if you want your nonverbal communication to be on point at all times. It has to become a habit. It cannot be something that you manually manage when you decide, all right, it's time to turn on the charm. That does not work. So what we do is, unless you're driving right now, stand up straight, chin up, chest out, shoulders back, smile on your face. So stand up straight, chin up, chest out. Shoulders back, smile on your face. I am, I'm
1: exhausted already.
0: You're, you're wiped out. Don't, and don't exaggerate this because I think a lot of people, they're like, they do this Superman pose and they look ridiculous and then it's uncomfortable and they don't want to do it. It's just supposed to be very natural. Our bodies, unfortunately, we sit all the time and it screws with our physiology. So we're kind of trying to reverse that. Now, the problem is we've got to maintain this position when we're interacting with other people, even though for 99.9% of us, this is not our default way of st- sitting, standing, walking, talking, whatever. So what we do is we, we every time we walk through a doorway, you straighten up and you reset to that position. Stand up straight, smile on your face, shoulders back, chin up, chest out. Every time you walk through a doorway, and I know people are going, yeah, that's great, but I'm, I walk through doorways so much during the day I'm going to forget to do that. Well, get one of those little packs of post-it notes, like the hot pink ones, the tiny ones. Stick them at eye level inside the doorway. Every time you walk through the doorway, that will break your focus. It will break your autopilot because you'll go, post-it note, what's that doing there? Oh, right, doorway drill. Put these all over your house or your office, well, at least your office, maybe not other people's offices, as much as you can. That will build
1: even more confidence. You put post-it notes in everyone else's [1] office. That's
0: right. Change the whole office's dynamic. We've had companies do that a lot, actually. Put those post-it notes up there, and what this does is since you're walking through your own doorway and your own office and your own bathroom and your own whatever so many times during the day, even in your own house, that when you go outside and you go to Starbucks and you go back to work, you go to a meeting, you go to a mixer, you go to an event, you don't have to worry about your nonverbals anymore because you have open, positive body language that you've developed as your now default mode. And this isn't just, great, I fixed my body language. What we know about impressions and what we know about the way that people interact with us is that their behavior towards us informs our own behavior towards them. The mind follows the body, the body follows the mind. This, this is not some sort of woo woo like, you know, meme from Instagram. This is scientifically based and what this means is that since we appear a certain way to other people and those people form judgments about us just like we do when we see them walking on the street, those judgments are informed by our first impression, which is always nonverbal. So since we've now changed our nonverbal communication, people start to treat us differently at first. Since people start to treat us differently, we start to behave differently, in other words, in line with that same nonverbal communication. So people start to treat us as more friendly, more open, more confident, more outgoing. What happens to our personality? It starts to slowly change over time. Mm. And this is very good. Because what this does is it allows us to interact more fluidly and more confidently and more openly with other people, which is exactly what most of us need to be doing.
1: Why do, why does standing up straight and with your shoulders back have such a big effect on people?
0: I think because, and again, this is a, this is a question for probably an evolutionary psychology researcher, but the oh, reason- That's this,
1: good, that's, I'm a, I'm a PhD in that, so we're good to go.
0: Perfect, good. So the reason that this works in, in, as far as I, as far as I know, is that since people are looking at At us for signals of of certain types of security and certain types of cues, right? So, for example, if somebody is making themselves small, doesn't want to be seen, looking down at the ground, we, we sense that they're shy, we sense that they're closed off. That's totally normal. I mean, we just react that way to children, we react that way to adults. It's something we've done our whole life. When we're open, when we're upright when we're smiling it signals friendliness it signals openness we're much more likely to interact with those people in a positive way it's just a, it's it's something that's probably evolved from our need to remain secure around other people and it's a, even in primates it is it's a display of friendliness openness uh and sometimes aggression when it's done wrong so of course hence the smile and not just yeah. the and and not exaggerating this and that's why I think a lot of people, when they exaggerate it, not only do they feel dumb, but it looks like you're overcompensating. So we want to avoid Like a
1: bodybuilder or something.
0: Yeah, like the tough guy who walks in and is like, what's up, everybody? Those guys typically are doing this in an exaggerated way, but they're also (laughs) not smiling. So all of these elements have to be there. And so when we do that, we sense that this person is not a threat is open, is confident. Those are the characteristics we see in natural, quote-unquote, natural leaders, and so we want people to see us as that. And what that does is it doesn't necessarily put us in charge, but what it does is it sets us up for a sort of soft dominance in social situations, which means that people feel warm toward us instead of just, ugh, this is the guy who has to be in charge now.
1: Jordan, you've, you've made a living studying charisma and charm. Who is the most charismatic person you've ever met?
0: Uh, Bill Clinton, for sure. For sure.
1: And what? why? Just everything? Everything uh, well, from nonverbal to personality? or
0: Yeah, I mean, he's kind of a cliche, charismatic guy, but there's a reason for that. And the reason is because when you meet him, I, I obviously met him in a room probably with 200 people or something like that. But when you meet the guy... He's just he looks at you. He pays attention to you. And when I, I interview celebrities and rich folks all the time, and there's an air of aloofness many times from these folks because they spend a lot of time avoiding people who want something from them. Whereas Bill Clinton, it, when you meet the guy, you're just like, we're friends now. Like you just feel that instantly. And the way that he does that is by being super present, focusing on you. He does this thing where he kind of looks back as he's shaking people's hand in a row, and he does it with everybody.
1: So like he'll shake, he'll shake your hand, move on to the next, but he'll give you a quick little glance. Yep, he'll he'll give you a quick
0: little glance right after that, and he's very open, very charismatic, positive, and he's, he's mildly, very mildly self-deprecating sometimes, but mostly he's, he'll joke around with you as well. So everybody's, everybody I know from that event has their like Bill Clinton story. And in part because he was the biggest celebrity, of course, at this event in a way, but also because of the way that he was with other folks. For example, there was a stage manager who was managing part of this event, and he was eating a roast beef sandwich. And I remember this story so clearly because it was right next to him when this happened. He's eating a roast beef sandwich because these guys don't get to eat. They're rushing through planning this event. And and uh, Bill Clinton walks up and goes, oh, boy, that looks delicious. I mean – very few people do that type of thing, and they yeah. certainly don't do it when they're the freaking former president of the United States, and you're the guy that holds the curtain so that he can walk through it, right?
1: No, he, he's incredible. I mean, I, we have a great uh, event at Forbes with, for philanthropy, and it's about 100 billionaires in a room and usually Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are there, and they're swarmed. And Bill Clinton showed up one day, and everyone just ran away from Buffett and Gates and swarmed Clinton. And those two guys are sitting in the corner with their cocktails, which very rarely happens when uh, Bill Gates is in a room and he's being left alone.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it, the guy is magnetic. A lot of it is natural. I, re, I asked him, you know, how did you learn all this? And he goes, he, he just, man, you got it too. He's just very good at deflecting, right? And he kind of prays, will so he'll, he'll – guide it gently back to the giver or to somebody else near him. That type of thing is very charismatic. And these are a set of habits that people can learn, but man, it takes a lot of practice and a long time.
1: And when you do these sessions, is there any kind of fictional character or movie character that people come up to you and be like, hey, I want to be like you know George Clooney in this movie, or I want to be like Johnny Depp in this? Is there certain characters that people come out and they want to emulate or that you try to teach in the class?
0: Yeah, I mean, people often will pick kind of an avatar of somebody that they want to emulate, that they would like to see themselves become more like. And this is good and bad. It, it's only bad if someone's picking somebody who's totally unnatural. Like if you get a guy who's been an IT IT guy, software engineer for 20 years, and he's like, I want to be like Russell Brand. It's like, okay, we can pick a couple of Russell Brand-esque <laughs> techniques and, and character traits, and we can teach them to you manually, and you can work on them, but... If you look like John Candy but you want to be Johnny Depp, we might have a difference in the way that other people are going to perceive you based on certain – uh characteristics that might be a little bit more immutable than the next. And so we can take characteristics of these people and we can show people how to study those folks. And that's something that we can start during the week long process. But I just want to be very clear. Nobody's coming into an AOC workshop and coming out George Clooney except George Clooney. Right? Mm -hmm. So so this is the week long is part of our is part of our process, but the actual process takes months and months and months after the boot camp, before the boot camp with prep. So we do give people avatars like that. They often come with their own. And we'll teach them how to study these people, but we're not gonna go, all right, bleep, bloop, 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 you're now George Clooney, see you guys later. That doesn't work.
1: Me, what's one of your favorite avatars? Like which which avatars do you
0: teach? So this is a little bit counterintuitive, I think, for a lot of people, but I, I like Mike Rowe. Do you know who that is? Dirty Jobs.
1: I, oh yes, okay.
0: I like Mike Rowe, and the reason is because he's very good at deflecting both positive and negative in a way um, that by owning it. So somebody might say, "Ah, oh, you're so stupid. I don't like what you do," and he'll be like, "You're not the first person that thinks I'm an idiot. Let me tell you a yeah. story about my mom," and he'll go into this vulnerable detailed story about this dumb thing that he did and of course after that everyone can relate to it and everyone loves it and i thought oh this is really cool the way that he does this is so masterful the way that he comes across is so positive and it's right now i'm in more more of a uh a juvenile phase where that's not necessarily going to work for me because of my personality and because of mm-hmm. the way that I'm I'm growing in my own business. So I have to pick different avatars like that and blend characteristics because I'm not going to pop out the other end a blue-collar hometown hero like Mike Rowe. It's just not going to happen. Uh, other avatars that people will choose – Like, George Clooney and Russell Brand are popular. Bill Clinton is, of course, popular. But for me personally, I really do enjoy the way that Mike Rowe interacts with other people. I think it's it's so masterful. And there's no surprise here that he started off in theater, in show business, and then into sales, and then into hosting a show. That jibes really well with my personal goals and my own path. But he's just, you know, 20, 30 years Along, further along than than myself. So for me personally, those are the advata- avatars that I pick. And uh, for guys in the class and girls in the class, those avatars do vary.
1: Who do women? Who, what women do you point to for avatars with 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 ladies?
0: What I've noticed for women is that things vary so widely. I think w- women, in many ways, in most ways, are much better at n- verbal and nonverbal communication than men. No, no big surprise there. I assume, right? Uh, but they'll pick anybody from Gwyneth Paltrow all the way to – well, before the election, Hillary Clinton was a popular one. Now, uh-huh. not so much, uh, but you'll see a lot of avatars that just vary so widely. it's It's almost surprising. Guys always pick the same handful or two. Women, it's all over the board. Sometimes I have to Google these people, and they're like, yeah, she's this actress from this thing, but she also wrote a book on this. And I think uh-huh. women are and, – and I know women are weighing an entirely different set of factors. Men often weigh things like looks – how smooth they are under pressure, seemingly. Uh, the way that they brand themselves in television and movies. Women, to the same extent, will use those same factors, but they will also incorporate a, a massive variety of other factors. Well, I just really like how she's able to balance her work life with her children. Oh, and she started a company. Ah, and she can sing. And guys never think about that. They're never like, yeah, he can sing. Nobody, I mean, nobody <laughs> cares about their work life balance, right? They're not trying to emulate that. It's mostly just as it relates to the, the way that they act and the way that they come across under pressure and with the opposite sex. That's what guys seem to be concerned with of all ages, of all marital statuses, and of all goals that these guys have. It's always the same handful or two.
1: And Jordan, wrapping up here, a quick question. You mentioned the election. How would you grade uh, Donald Trump in terms of of uh, body language and charm when he's not on Twitter in, in real life?
0: Yeah, I've never met Donald Trump, so I, I probably will refrain from commenting, especially because, honestly, you can't really tell what people are like if you only meet them uh, or if you only have experience with them on television or in media because yeah. they're purposely putting on a brand and it's not going to be the same type of authenticity you're going to see from them in real life. And that's why you hear so many things like, What? I've met Donald Trump. I've known him for 10 years. He's never anything like this. But they don't want to say he's completely different than he comes across now in the media because that makes him look bad as well. But what you hear behind closed doors is this guy's totally different. This guy's not like that at all. And then, of course, you see other people that have dealings with him strictly in business that are like, no, he's even worse in this way. <laughs> so you really have to take the context into consideration when you're talking about anybody with a high profile like that. Well,
1: In terms of his, his media persona, uh, what you see, what, how do you – does he have some kind of coarse and perverse charm, I guess, in a way? What, what yeah. Would...
0: Yes. Uh, the, the short answer is yes, and the reason is this. What he's doing – I did an entire show about this with Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert as mm-hmm. well. Uh, that will be on The Art of Charm. The reason that he's doing a lot of the things that he's doing, according to people who are experts in this particular field, is that – The way that he speaks is relatable. It's simplified in a way that appeals to a lot of folks in America and, frankly, outside of it. He does a really masterful job of telling a lot of people what they want to hear. And then when the consequences come back around, he also does a very masterful job of appealing to emotion instead of logic. And I don't mean that in an insulting way, but what I do mean is he's very good at taking a logical argument and instead of addressing the – actual arguments, and this is maybe my inner lawyer talking, instead of addressing the arguments, he will just appeal to emotion. So you might say something like, a wall with mexico would never work there's too much space and there's too much you know there's too many open areas and we couldn't possibly monitor it and he goes mine's going to be the best believe me <laughs> it's going to be amazing and then people go oh yeah i like that that sounds awesome that's going to be great this other guy doesn't know what he's talking about even though clearly he didn't address any of those facts which no. is why we end up with memes and jokes like alternative facts which it which essentially just means the emotional argument that distracts everybody from the actual facts themselves. Does that make sense?
1: It does. It's a little, a little frightening. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, this is great. Jordan, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having me, man.
1: That's it for this episode of The Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcast1.com. Thanks for listening.
0: I'm Rob Cisternino, the aptly named Rob Has a Podcast, where we're creating
3: fun, smart conversation around reality TV games like Survivor. And this
0: March, Survivor Game Changers is finally here. Join me weekdays for episode recaps, player interviews, and of course, your feedback. So if you're ready for a game change in your own Survivor experience, download Rob Has a Podcast at podcastone.com on the Podcast One app or subscribe on iTunes.
3: Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details U.S. only.
1: I'm Ed Donahue.